sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at Rethreaded.com. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic and a professor of healthcare science. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, our staff shares their favorite healthcare books for the spring. Okay, the days are getting longer, flowers are blooming, and people are going outside. It's time for our best spring healthcare book show, where we explore the world of healthcare through the lens of literature. In this episode, our team is excited to present a curated selection of the most compelling and thought-provoking health and healthcare books of the season. From provocative science journalism to personal narratives of resilience and healing, our lineup features work that offers insights, inspiration, and a deeper understanding of the complexities within the healthcare landscape. So whether you're a healthcare professional, a patient navigating the system, or simply curious about the human experience of illness and healing, these books are sure to captivate, educate, and spark meaningful conversations and serve as that perfect book for taking advantage of longer daylight reading time. First up, my pick for best health system science read, and it's Rethinking Diabetes, what science reveals about diet, insulin, and successful treatments by noted science journalist Gary Tobbs. Now, diabetes is a condition that's on the rise in the U.S., uh, particularly type 2 diabetes. Now, as opposed to type 1 diabetes, where the patient has no ability to prevent it, type 2 diabetes can be prevented. However, in this dense and deeply researched book, Gary Tobbs makes an argument that modern healthcare is in love with drugs to manage this disease, as opposed to a focusing on low-carb diets. Gary is the rare voice trying to get attention on a common-sense approach to diabetes in an era where anti-diabetic drugs are a cultural phenomenon. For this reason, we picked his important book, and I had the chance to talk to Gary Tobbs recently from his home in Oakland, California. Gary, welcome to our program. Uh, thank you for having me, Joseph. Now, your journey into looking at this book starts with questioning the low-fat dietary advice in 2002. How has your perspective evolved, particularly in the context of how we manage diabetes? Traditionally, it's, it's, it's physicians or researchers who go back to look for the evidence base of what they're they believe what they're telling their patients and prescribing to their patients, and they find out, as one of the founders of this movement put it, that the evidence isn't set in concrete, it's set in jello. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, ideally, you say, hey, we really don't have an evidence base for this. Let's do randomized control clinical trials and find out what's the best therapy for this treatment, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, and then we go from there. And um, as a journalist, I just did the same thing in uh, the nutrition 
field, uh, beginning with uh, investigations for the journal Science back in 1998, 1999, and then that took me into uh, obesity and dietary therapy for obesity and their beliefs about the, the, the what is it about our diet and lifestyle that triggers obesity, diabetes, heart disease. And yeah, it's, it's a, the, what you find is that much of what we believe, much of what we're told, I mean, it's a, it's a cliche, right? Everything you think you know is wrong, but when you actually go looking for the evidence to support these beliefs, they turn out to be wrong. And it's most or at least not supported by the existing evidence. Um, and it's most noticeable in diabetes, which is why I wrote this latest book. Um, since 1921, with the discovery of the hormone insulin and the initiation of insulin therapy as the sort of bedrock treatment for diabetes, the medical community naturally saw this as a disease to be treated by this very powerful drug and then drugs that have been developed ever since and that nobody wanted to really, uh, you know, nobody wants to be on a diet is the easiest way to put it. And so they could allow a certain uh, leisurely approach to dietary therapy and figure they could cover all the uh, consequences with drug therapy. And this was very, uh, profitable for the pharmaceutical industry, although that's not, I think, the primary motivation. And uh, if it had worked to keep the disease under the control and keep the consequences, the, the, the complications of the disease under control, that would have been wonderful. But when you see the uh, from the 1970s onward as the 1960s onward as the diabetes uh, medical community decides to test their fundamental beliefs about this disease with ever more ambitious clinical trials. Uh, first of all, their beliefs tend to, to fail. They get refuted by the trials. And the end result is that we have this approach to diabetes therapy that focuses on drug therapy and then acknowledges that these diseases, that people just get worse, even with the drug therapy. And the biggest challenge to better treatment, according to some ADA, American Diabetes Association analyses, are doctors not being willing to, you know, add new drugs or increase doses or change drugs as necessary. So, you, you know, the people suffering, living with diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, end up on you know, multiple drug therapies, not just to control their blood sugar, but to control their blood pressure. And now with these new uh, wonder drugs, these GLP-1 drugs to control their weight. And the expectation is they're still going to get worse with time. It's a chronic progressive disease. And mm. all of this is based on this switch from making drug therapy the primary method of treatment rather than dietary therapy well this let's, uh, just, let's unpack a few of these things because because uh, uh, yeah. what you said uh, it, you're, you're you're hitting all on all all cylinders on all these areas and and I, I agree I mean diabetes the numbers are just it continue to increase and 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 it is a chronic constant disease now you point out and and I think you you were just mentioning that that we in the medical world, they, we overlook the diets, particularly low carb diets, keto diets. Um, how, how, what evidence are you kind of looking to kind of support this claim? Uh, or, and how does, how do those diets compared to these pharmaceutical options? Do we know? Um, on one level, no. And that's one of the problems. So, uh, Again, one of the advantages of going back in the history is you can you can especially today in 2024 with the internet and you could you could find virtually every article ever published on this disease. You don't have to live in a medical school library for 20 or 30 years like I would have had to do, you know, pre 2000 to do the the kinds of books I do. Instead, you can download virtually the entire history of the field. Right. Um, and so from 
1797 to 1921, the discovery of insulin, the only way that patients with diabetes can control their blood sugar was dietary. And they had the overwhelming, what's called the standard of care, what every major diabetes specialist prescribed. And this is a period, by the way, in which diabetes was a very rare disease. So when I talk about every diabetes specialist, I'm talking maybe a dozen between the US and Europe. Most of them are in Europe, which was uh, far advanced in medical science. Um, they all prescribe very, in effect, it's a, a disease where the symptoms manifest themselves because of the carbohydrates being consumed in the diet. So if you didn't eat those, you, for the most part, didn't manifest the symptoms of the disease. And it, again, it, if we have two primary forms of diabetes, type 1 diabetes, uh, which is the acute form that, that right, strikes right. Uh, primarily children and adolescents. And in that, that, that disease, you could, you could slow the inevitable progression with a carbohydrate-free diet, but you couldn't stop it. And ultimately, it ended in, in diabetic ketoacidosis, coma, and death until insulin was discovered. Um, Type 2 diabetes could be controlled by diet. Got they it. knew that in the 19th century. Um, it was clear that <laughs> patients who ate what today we would call a ketogenic diet, a keto, tended to appear healthy and then as though they didn't have the disease. Then with the discovery of insulin, like I said, everything switches to drug therapy. Not only that, insulin is a powerful method of lowering blood sugar. And since blood sugar goes up with carbohydrates, now the doctors are telling patients you have to eat carbohydrates because otherwise you could die of low blood sugar. So you have a drug that's so powerful, it can kill you unless you eat the foods that you weren't supposed to eat until it was discovered. Right. I mean, it's the... Best way I can describe this, and this was how it was described to me by a, um, a young man who was diagnosed with type 1, well, young by my standards, type 1 diabetes when he was 36 years old. This was back around 2017, a chef who became a journalist. And when you're, you know, when you're diagnosed with this disease, as with any disease, you're sort of suddenly thrust into this world, disease world, in which you have no preconceptions, but you have to learn very quickly, particularly diabetes, where, you know, how you eat and how you live has such a huge effect on on your your prospects. And so his physician explains to him that he's, he's been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. He hasn't absence of the hormone insulin, insulin deficient. And so he's, and he needs insulin to metabolize carbohydrates safely. So what they're going to do is they're going to have him continue to eat carbohydrates, like 50% of his calories, and then they're going to give him insulin to uh, keep him healthy. And he, remember, he has no preconception. So he says to his doctor, wait, what you're telling me is that Carbohydrates are now toxic to me, and insulin is the antidote. And you want me to eat the toxin and take the antidote. Why don't I just not eat the toxin? (laughs) When you put it like that, it becomes pretty obvious in, in one element of it, yeah. It, and so, and you know, because I've been researching these subjects since 1998, um, way too long, I'm, I'm well aware of all the mindsets that were created. So when you're not eating carbohydrates, you're eating a diet that generates ketones, um, which are molecules that your body uses to fuel your brain, among other things. When you're like, for instance, if you go a day without eating, you're generating significant ketones and you know, your brain lives off ketones, perfectly happy or maybe even happier doing it. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, you know, since the 1960s, when ketogenic diets became popular, most famously by, you know, uh, Robert Atkins, the Atkins diet, sure. um, the assumption was that, well, either the ketones would cause this, would 
spin out of control and you die of diabetic ketoacidosis or the high fat nature of these diets would give you heart disease or even worse you know we diagnose one of the diagnostic criteria of an eating disorder is avoiding an entire food group so if you're diagnosed with diabetes and you can no longer metabolize carbohydrates safely and you don't want to take drugs and you decide you're just not going to eat carbohydrates that's grains and starches you know bread and potatoes and pasta and legumes and maybe even fruit now the according to uh, one set of criteria you have an eating disorder even though this eating disorder is keeping you healthy without requiring drug therapy so it's a, it's it's what seems simple we created all with the best of intentions a whole world of uh, uh, obstacles what do you ultimately hope to see in the approach to diabetes treatment uh, uh, overall, uh, what's that message out there to uh, our listeners about what you hope to see in terms with regards to the management of this condition? Well, type 2 diabetes seems to me clearly to be a disease that can be not just managed with diet, but managed better with diet than drugs. Uh, in that sense, if you change your diet, you can put this disease in to remission or reverse it or show no symptoms of having it. Whereas with drug therapy, you're using drugs to, in effect, deal with the symptoms. And we know, again, that it's just going to get worse. You're going to need more drugs with time. Um, the drugs don't make you healthy. They just delay your slide into poor health. Um, that's for type 2 diabetes, that's clear. And so, I, you know, and I, I think if people are making a choice, do I want to be as healthy as possible or do I want to make my life as easy as possible? And we make those choices every day. But with, with it's not the fringe belief anymore to say you right. can do this with diet and, and you'll, be, you'll be grateful as the years go by. I'm going to let that serve as our last word. This has been fascinating. Uh, Gary, thank you so much for joining us and uh, for talking about this book. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. We've been talking to journalist Gary Tobbs. He has a new book, Rethinking Diabetes, What Science Reveals About Diet, Insulin, and Successful Treatment. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and if you're just joining us, it's our picks for best healthcare books of the spring, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tag me on X at jservin. Up next, our producer, Stacey Bennett, gives us her pick for best healthcare book of the spring. Whether you want to believe it or not, systemic racism is ingrained within the modern healthcare system. However, the consequences to which this problem influences one's life is made crystal clear in Dr. Uche Blackstock's highly readable, incredible memoir entitled Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. Dr. Blackstock is a black physician that graduated from Harvard Medical School and made history as part of a triad whose mother and twin sister graduated from Harvard Medical School as well. Even the historical legacy from America's most prestigious medical school couldn't protect them from racism or her mother from health issues. It's maddening. I picked this book not only for its must-read story, but for the solutions the book proffers. Dr. Servin recently interviewed Dr. Uche Blackstock from her home in Brooklyn. I'm thrilled to have with me today a distinguished guest, Dr. Uche Blackstock. She's an emergency physician, founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity, and author of the compelling book Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. In this poignant memoir, she reflects on her journey through medicine, 
guided by the legacy of her mother, a trailblazing kidney specialist. And the narrative unfolds against the backdrop of racial disparities deeply ingrained in American healthcare, exposing a history that's often not really taught in medical school. We're going to delve into the book's impactful revelations and explore the urgent issues it raises. Dr. Blackstock joins us now from New York City. Thank you so much for joining us. Your book is painting a, a vivid picture of your family, and I, I'm just so glad that you published it and really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for joining our show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited that Legacy is out in the world um, to share with everyone. So I mentioned your family members that are also physicians, but can you share what inspired you to write Legacy and explore it within this lens? Sure. So, so the listeners should understand that Legacy it has a double meaning. Um, it's the legacy of being a second generation Black woman physician. My mother was the original Dr. Blackstock. Um, she grew up here in central Brooklyn, where I, where I still live. Um, on public assistance, born to a single mom. She was the first person in her family to go to college. Um, and in college, she had a chemistry professor who saw her potential and encouraged her to apply to medical school. She ended up being accepted to all her medical schools and wow. ended up at Harvard Medical School. Amazing. So, yes, yes. So, you know, my sister and my mother and I are the first Black mother-daughter legacy from Harvard Medical School. Um, it really wasn't until I got older that I recognized how rare that was, how rare it is to be a Black woman physician. And so I wanted to use my personal story and my mother's story to talk about racial health inequities um, in U.S. healthcare. How did your life, if you will, um, influence your perspective on systemic racism in healthcare? Yeah, you know, it actually wasn't until I graduated from medical school. It was actually during residency where I was uh, training in emergency medicine at a public hospital here in Brooklyn that I began to like see, you know, with my patients, you know, when they were coming in with dis different diseases and illnesses, and it was a mostly, you know, working class black area um, that I started recognizing like all of these gaps in what I had learned in medical school, that what I was seeing in terms of my patients' illnesses was actually a result of how systemic racism impacts what we call like, the social determinants of health, you know, education, housing, employment, that I was seeing the culmination of that in my patients. And I was wondering, like reflecting, like, why didn't I <laughs> learn about this right. in medical school? So I almost had to unlearn and relearn um, and that's what I kind of, that's what I started doing during residency and even more so as a practicing physician. One of the concepts that uh, is brought up in your book that, that fascinates me and, and, and as someone who's, you know, as a physician myself, I, I, I often didn't think about it, but, but you're right on target is this whole idea of segregated care. Uh, yeah. can you, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because, you know, I had that experience when I was a faculty member in academic medicine. I was working at both our city hospital in, in Manhattan and then public hospital and then also at, uh, you know, an academic center, um, NYU. And it was just such a contrast seeing the difference in resources between these two hospitals that literally were a block apart, um, just in terms of like, specialty care in terms of you know, it's just social work capacity to help patients with different issues, follow-up appointments. Like there was such this difference where at the public hospital, most people were uninsured or underinsured. Right. At the private hospital, most people had insurance. And so they had all these specialists, you know, they were so connected into the system. Once they arrived, things kind of, you know, happened very seamlessly. Whereas at, you know, the public hospital Bellevue, literally, felt like you had to like jump through hoops to get the most simple things done for your patients. So again, same city, only blocks apart, but you know, just sort of different levels of resources and care. And that to think about this, you know, happening in, you know, 2024 is really pretty appalling. 
Uh, no, no question. Now, you also wrote about uh, like personal experiences, I know, with your mom, uh, and I'm talking about health experiences and yourself. Yeah. Can you can you share that with our listeners as well? Because I think those are so illuminating. Because you guys come from the creme de la creme of 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 the American healthcare system from an educational standpoint. Right, and and, and I use like my mother's, you know, her her early diagnosis and premature death from acute myelogenous leukemia, like as an you know as an example, like she took such great care of herself. She ran every day. She started running in medical school. She ate well, um, but she was diagnosed at 46 with with leukemia and actually a a kind of leukemia that's very, very rare for young Black women to be diagnosed with. And, um, you know, it's interesting because when I was doing research, you know, for the book, I learned that my mother, the neighborhoods that she lived in were close to like super fun sites where there had been a lot of toxic dumping growing up. And when we actually went for a second opinion about her leukemia, her oncologist said, it looks like you're exposed to radiation very early on in your life. And so it's very likely like because of the consequences of environmental racism that my mother, you know, lived in these areas and may have been exposed. And so again, you know, like socioeconomic status, income, professional level of attainment, it's not necessarily protective for Black people in terms of health. And I also talked about my own experience being misdiagnosed in medical school as a first year medical student. Oh I had goodness. to go to the ER three times um, with abdominal pain. I was questioned like about how much pain I was in. I was questioned <laughs> about like my sexual activity like multiple times. And turns out I ended up having a perforated appendix and I had significant complications. I missed a month of medical school. Um, at the time, like I was too scared to speak up. You know, my twin sister was also in medical school with sure, me and said, sure. I think you have appendicitis, you know, <laughs> and I was, I, even as a medical student, I was scared to speak up. So I can imagine what like the average patient, but looking back on that experience, I always question, you know, as a young black woman, would that have happened if I wasn't, you know, would I have been misdiagnosed? Would I've had to go to the ER three times? What I've had the complications. So I have this experience as a, you know, lived experience as a black woman patient, but also on the other side as being in the system as well. So one of the things uh, that you do now is that you founded uh, this health equity focused uh, foundation company. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that uh, in terms of uh, what, how you're trying to tackle this, this huge issue? Yeah, like, so I, I wanted to be part of the solution. I wanted right. to, like, as I was like, you know, on this journey, um, you know, making all of these revelations and realizations, I said, you know, I want to be part of the solution. So I founded Advancing Health Equity about five years ago with the specific goal to work with like healthcare and public health organizations around dismantling racism in medicine. So, you know, I have a whole team and we go in, we do organizational assessments, we interview leadership and staff um, and patients, um, and we do strategic planning with them around their health equity goals. Uh, We also do leadership coaching for healthcare leaders around equity, how they can be more inclusive leaders. So I basically am trying to create like the workplace that I always wanted as a black woman physician, um, and also working with them to ensure that they're delivering equitable and competent care to a diverse patient population. So it's really been wonderful. Like, I feel like I'm doing my part in addressing this problem. And and I applaud you because it's so needed. I will tell you what, I uh, when I mentioned to uh, a few colleagues that I was going to have this interview for our show, um, the question that I always often get, get from uh, from physicians, providers on uh, that are on the front line is like, what can we do? Like we're there to take mm-hmm. care of patients. Uh, there's 15 minutes or there's an hour. Uh, how do, how, I guess my, my simple question is uh, what advice do you have for healthcare professionals, if you will, to help, sure. to help improve the system when sometimes it feels powerless against it? Yes. And so, you know, in the last chapter, I have like a call to action for different groups and I have a call to action for health professionals. Like, I think there are a few things they can do. I think recognize their own, you know, implicit biases. You know, we are, you know, physicians are not any different than anyone else (laughs) in this country. We absorb, you know, cultural messaging 
um, you know, in media, um, from our parents, you know, in our schools. And so I think the reflection piece is really important. I think also truly listening to your patients. I mean, that's what we see, um, even if, you, if it's just 15 minutes, and I know what it's like, because I'm an emergency medicine physician, but yeah. like truly listening to your physicians, because we find with a lot of Black patients, their concerns are often dismissed and ignored, and that leads to delayed diagnoses, diagnoses and misdiagnoses, and even harm and death. So truly just you know, being in the moment, connecting with your patient, listening to them. And then the other thing is, I think that there are practices and, and procedures that can be put in place within healthcare institutions, you know, that can help providers like to track, you know, how they're caring for patients. Like, are there different inequities that you're seeing in terms of prescribing habits, you know, kind of more mm -hmm. um, like systematic, you know, policies that can be put in place. And, and so health professionals can get involved in that as well. So, you know, I think there are several things that people can do, but really it's just about giving every patient like dignified and respectful care. But unfortunately that's not happening. So that self-reflection piece is super important. You know, within uh, the, the book, there's this very, it, it really resonated uh, with me at you in the closing moments of that book, you, you reflect on your mother's advice to take care of yourself. How do you, how to our listeners out there, to all of us, how do we prioritize self care amidst, well, someone as busy as yourself and all your advocacy work? Uh, what I know, <laughs> what advice do you have? Yeah, well, I think you know, I used to say that you know, I somehow managed to take care of myself, but but, but to be honest, I'm very intentional about it. Um, I make time and space to have, you know, to, to spend time with like family and loved ones. Um, I go on really <laughs> wonderful trips. I actually got a massage yesterday morning. Nice. I have a wonderful, <laughs> yeah, I have a wonderful therapist that I've been seeing for the last five years that I see every other week who literally has, you know, kind of held my hand as I've gone through all of these life changes, um, you know, growing platform, health communications over the last few years. So and I journal, I meditate. So I, I, I really try very hard to, um, you know, buffer myself against, you know, the stress that could come with like, being so busy and having this platform. And so intentionality is the, is the key word. Always kind of remember, sometimes I forget, but, um, but trying to be really intentional about making the time for joy and, and relaxation. I love it. In our final moment, to our listeners out there who may be grappling with these issues uh, that are stacked against them when they go and touch the healthcare system, whether in the emergency room or physician or other provider offices, what's your best advice for our patients yeah. out there to, to, to kind of navigate this? Yeah. I mean, you know, I always say that so that's a hard, hard question because I, I feel like they shouldn't have to, they shouldn't have to feel like they're going into war when they're yeah, <laughs> going right. to the, you know, to seek health care, you know, seek care, right? They're in their most vulnerable state. But I always say, you know, bring, bring, you know, a trusted friend or family member with you for moral support. Like, I honestly don't have a problem with people doing a little bit of research <laughs> before they come you know, to the doctor yeah. and at least like write down what they're, write down like what their symptoms are, what questions that they have, because we know in the moment they may be a little bit nervous, you know, to ask questions. Um, and then also there are resources out there. There are great apps, like what one was called Helping Her Hue, if people are looking for, yeah. um, you know, physicians or health professionals that can provide culturally responsive care. There's the Earth app, IRT. TH, um, where people can look for maternal health providers. So there are a lot of really wonderful things happening out there in the technology space um, for people to connect with healthcare professionals that, um, you know, can provide them with the care they need. I love it. And thank you so much uh, for all of this uh, great information. Uh, I, we really appreciate you spending uh, part of your day with us. I know you're super busy. Uh, and congratulations again on a fantastic book. Thank you so very much for having me. I, I very much enjoyed the conversation. I did as well. We've been talking to Dr. Uche Blackstock. She is an emergency medicine physician and founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity and the author of the compelling new book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. Next up is executive producer David Luckin's Spring Book Pick. 
We've discussed brain injury frequently on this show, but mostly from the perspectives of prevention, diagnosis, and treatment. We've interviewed Super Bowl winning players who left the NFL because of concussions and multiple other athletes with similar stories. What sets this book apart is reading a story from a courageous non-athlete who had multiple concussions and how she learned to navigate her marriage around the unknown repercussions from those injuries and its impact on the intimate aspects of her relationship. It's a story that none of our team had heard before, and its honest, courageous, and unflinching voice helped us all better understand why brain injuries are important to prevent and manage. It is for that reason we picked it as a must-read health memoir, Sex with a Brain Injury. Dr. Servin recently interviewed Annie Leontis from their home in Washington, D.C. Today we're going to delve into, I hope to be a thought-provoking conversation with a remarkable author. We have the privilege of hosting author and professor of writing at George Washington University, uh, Annie Leontis, whose latest book, I love the title, Sex with a Brain Injury on Concussion and Recovery, explores that intersection of intimacy and neurological challenges. What I love about the book is that it's honest and an unflinching navigation of the complexities of love, relationships, and resilience in the face of a brain injury. Annie Lantis shares their personal experiences and insightful reflections that challenge societal norms surrounding sex and recovery. They join us now from Washington, D.C. Annie, welcome to our program. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It is so good to have you. And again, congratulations on a wonderful book. I know the title would seem like it's evident in the answer to this question, but I'll ask it. How did your personal experience inspire you to write about this topic? You know, this condition is so invisible and um, not quite yet culturally apprehended, particularly outside of the sports arena, right? Like we sure. talk a lot about concussion with hockey and football. Um, <clears throat> we occasionally talk about it at the workforce or after accidents, but the uh, longevity and the kind of ongoing vulnerability um, is is not really uh, appreciated, right? Like I didn't know, for instance, when I had my first concussion that I was um, one to two times more likely to get a second, and after the second, two to three times to get to get a third. And this is how people actually, you know, these uh, symptoms compound, and people sometimes rack up. I've heard even up to twelve concussions over a lifetime. Yeah. yeah. And for me, this was really, um, it was hard to grapple with that reality and understand that so much of my personal experience had changed, um, particularly just my experience with, in my own body and uh, with my emotions. And I, I realized once I started writing this book, uh, which was its own surprise for me, that I needed to, in order to do justice to what you know, millions of people are living with, right? Millions of people are living with brain injury, um, even mild brain injury, which we tend to not see or dismiss or have a, a poor understanding of. I knew that in order to do that project, I needed to write about those parts of ourselves that are often excluded from this conversation yeah. or seem in the public eye to be uh, not affected. Annie, as you as you reflect on it, what misconceptions do you think people have about physical intimacy and a brain injury, which a concussion is? I appreciate that question a lot. I mean, I think it's not that divorced from someone who has another kind of chronic condition or illness or um even maybe had a miscarriage or suffers from depression, right? Like sexual health and wellness uh, are, it's really an extension of our larger selves. And if you've had TBI, which can cause uh, emotional lability, disinhibition, anxiety, depression, mood swings, egocentricity, right? Like sure. those really impair uh, 
anyone's relationship to their body and sex. And, um, you know, the, the mood swings alone can be problematic. Now, for me, it was specifically migraine. Okay, um, okay. You know, and, and, and I think that that's true for other folks with TBI. For me, it was um, if I had an orgasm, I would get a, a really intense migraine. Oh, it would not just affect me for that day, but for multiple days. And it's not necessarily true to everybody's experience. Some people don't, you know, don't have trouble at all, but some people have trouble with arousal. Some people have um, sexual impulsivity after concussion. So it really depends on the person and the nature of the injury. Annie, how long was it after you had the uh, the injuries or the concussions that you started noticing these type of things? It was pretty immediate. I mean, I was in a very acute phase of healing almost immediately after my first injury. And because I had three concussions in one year, that period, that acute period really extended across those 12, 13 months. And so um, it became, even in the second and third years, something to really grapple with. And, you know, if I'm honest, it's still something that affects me, not as intensely as it did in those early days, um, but it's changed, you know, my relationship to sex as an activity. When you noticed that this was happening, and and I think list, I mentioned this in my intro, and I have a feeling that's what uh, listeners, particularly to this show, will have uh, a question about is, at what point did you bring this up with physicians or providers, or or did you not? At what point did you bring this up, and how how helpful were they? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm thinking about your introduction about how we just don't talk about this, even with providers. I actually think I didn't. Um, I don't think I brought this up to my provider or any of the people who were giving me care. Um, I think it <clears throat> was maybe folded into a larger challenge with my general physical health, right? And so it was like, well, let's curb the migraines. And if we can curb the migraines, you know, maybe you'll be able to exercise. And if you can exercise, then, you know, maybe you'll be able to go out and do some social things, right? And so um, sex was always maybe implicit or even omitted, I think, um, in, in certain conversations. And for me, part of writing uh, about this book was, yes, talking about sex and intimacy, but also the larger impact on my marriage and interpersonal relationships, right? Because sex is just one part of what it looks like to be inside of a long-term partnership. And um, sex can be such a healing way to connect with your partner. And when that is gone, and when there is this long-term recovery, you know, you can start to really drift away from one another and become strangers to one another. So it was something I was very aware of that I wasn't just struggling with it, but my partner was too. And I guess that brings us like, I know uh, those, uh, listeners who are interested are going to want to read your book, but without giving anything away, what advice would you have for individuals who want to support their partner, if you will, through the recovery? The, as you said, it was a partnership. It was affecting your marriage. Uh, what advice do you have navigating that terrain in this situation? It's such a challenge to support any partner through injury or illness or a chronic condition. It really calls on us to be our best selves and we cannot always be our best selves. So I just want to acknowledge that it it really is such a challenge for both people or multiple people if it's a poly relationship. Um, I would say recognizing that this is really a completely unseen experience that the culture has um, dismissed and diluted, uh, really, as for for centuries at this point. I mean, the yeah. Greeks might have had a different relationship to head injury, but sure. Western medicine is still uncovering the extent of post-concussive syndrome or disorder, um, and there's there's still a lot of work to be done. So the first thing is just like to know that when your partner is in pain or weak, right? Like f fatigue and weakness are a big part of this. 
or just not themselves or uninterested in sex or feels like somebody different, that's part of the injury too. Um, and that and that can require a lot of patience and it can feel like um, you might be suddenly married or connected to someone you don't recognize. I see. Uh, but that, but a version of that person is still there. And in fact, working through it together can bring you even closer. Annie, uh, just to kind of help uh, get a listener up to speed, what, uh, what, were the, what happened that led to these concussions uh, that caused all of this for you? Well, the first one for me was a bike accident. Okay. Um, it was really, I think, fueled by insomnia. Uh, and I had recovered pretty quickly after that. I mean, I was living in California as a visiting writer at the time. I was able to get like acupuncture and take care of myself. And those things really did help. Uh, but again, I didn't know how vulnerable I was to additional concussions. And so when I had two more that same year, wow. plus, you know, a number of subconcussive hits that just, you know, subconcussive hits happen all the time. You know, you knock your head sure. on a shelf, subconcussive hit. But it's not, um, you don't have the same kind of uh, structural vulnerability that I do uh, or somebody who's concussed or has a history of head injury does. Um, and so, you know, now it's become very much a part of my life and very much a part of my consciousness. As you think and reflect on your experiences and what you've learned for your marriage, for all of this, kind of navigating all of this, what advice do you wish someone would have given you or maybe you'd give yourself that found yourself in this situation that you'd hope someone would have told you sooner? Maybe I wish somebody would have given me the number for a good couples counselor. Okay. Because I Fair. think this is really quite difficult to navigate on your own. Um, but I think having, at the end of the day, having really good open conversations about what the experience is like, um, you know, just, just understanding that the partner who is injured cannot possibly express everything that's going on for them. And the partner that is witness to that also cannot express everything that they're feeling in that moment. And I wish I wish I had maybe understood to uh, more directly talk about those things and the ways that we were changing individually and with one another. Annie, as we wrap up our conversation, uh, what hope? do you have that this book will help to do to contribute um, to this conversation? What, what do you hope our listeners really get out of this? Perhaps there's someone about to struggle with this journey or in the midst of this. What do you hope you can help them with? That's such a generous question. And again, I really, I'm so grateful to share this book, hopefully as a tool um, to make the unseen seen, because I do think we're at this tipping point, kind of like we were with smoking in the last couple of decades, where the culture, cultural consciousness shifts to be able to recognize impairment and damage and suffering and treatment. And I think we really on, are on the edge of that with brain injury in terms of students returning back to school, you know, return to learn as uh, Seabird out of Oregon University calls it, um, and for uh, uh, the carceral system and thinking about how TBI affects um, people who are incarcerated. So my hope is that this can be part of the conversation and really help people in their own private lives be seen and see the ones they love. I love that message. One last question. Any resources that you found to be helpful that you'd recommend uh, for our listeners out there on this topic? That's a great question. And I think there are there are so many resources available. Um, there are support groups probably local to your listeners. Uh, Love Your Brain is an amazing resource. Um, there's a great group online called Pink Pink Concussions over on Facebook. 
Um, again, I'd love to just recognize the work of uh, David Cracky and Siebert at Oregon University, as well as uh, Kim Gorgans and Markel Taylor at Denver University. So there are a lot. There's a lot of exciting stuff happening. Um, but if if it's a matter of just finding, wanting to find people nearby, there are absolutely support groups um, out of hospitals and uh, universities that I think can be really helpful to uh, folks who are tuning in. Annie, I want to just thank you so much for joining us, uh, sharing uh, your story and sharing this uh, beautiful book. Uh, I, I wish you the very, very best of health in the future. And thanks so much again for, for giving us your time. Thank you. Thank you for uh, seeing the walking wounded. We've been talking to Annie Leentis. They're a professor of writing at George Washington University and the author of the book, Sex with a Brain Injury, Concussion and Recovery. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Quorum is our director. Next week's program is the latest in HIV treatment and MS in kids. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tag me on X at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. The American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida, through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com shop.